out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, well, hour plus. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, singer, musician and very creative person. It is the one and only Sarah Jane Owen, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and much, much more. One time member of the Body Statures and the Bell Stars. Yes, remember them. And she's gone on to do lots of other stuff, which you'll find out in this interview. It's very interesting. So do take notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you were paying attention. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat with Sarah Jane, we got down to that very interesting um, subject that was the early formative years. Sarah Jane, it's over to you. Take it away. Well, my parents were very musical. They both played piano. They both could whistle and hold a tune really well. And we were probably encouraged to go to church on a Sunday. Um, Not overly religious, but, you know, I I always enjoyed the hymns. And then when we were very little, I think they sent us off for piano lessons. I think I was an angel in a play and played some sort of musical instrument for that. then I uh, saw somebody at school played guitar and I wanted to be Joni Mitchell. I, I, I saw her somewhere or saw a picture of her with all her turquoise jewelry on. And that was kind of it for me, at, I suppose, nearly 12. Mm-hmm. And for my 12th birthday, I asked my parents if they would buy me a guitar, um, acoustic guitar. My mom said, Oh, that's an awfully strange thing for a girl of your age. <laughs> um, which I suppose it was back then. I mean, I'm I'm uh, 67 now. I'm I was born in 54. So um, what would I have been at 12? I would it would have been 66. Right. 1966. So 1966, a girl wanted, a 12-year-old girl wanted a guitar. So um, I can remember staying up until the wee hours trying to play this thing until my fingers were nearly bleeding. I was that kind of keen. Mm. And then the, a boy at school taught me quite a few things. And then I played in the school play. But the real turning point for me, I think, musically, apart from Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, and a lot of those active, uh, Bob Dylan, I was exposed to that kind of hippie movement of activists that mm-hmm. were singers, singer-songwriters. Then at 15, the Ida White Pop Festival had been happening. And I think for a couple of years, I was too young to go. And now I was 15 and I just lied to my parents. Basically, I couldn't get any of my friends to go or their parents weren't going to let them. And I lived in Portsmouth. So it was just a ferry ride across. And I told my parents I was going with a whole group of people. And I wore a uh, Laura Ashley dress. I can remember I had Jesus sandals on, patchouli oil. I had a, a necklace that looked like an ankh. And I went to the 1968 um, Isle of Wight Pop Festival, which was kind of one of the primo ones because it was when Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janice Joplin, Joni Mitchell, and just star studded. 
Mm -hmm. And so that would be my four days or five days of that was just like, I, I just was like a sponge. I took in all of those musicalities and I suppose it would inspire uh, my whole career and the way I played. And of course, in a lot of the Bell Stars uh, music, I was playing Wawa and Jimi Hendrix was the inspiration behind using the Wawa pedal. Whoa, um, and then I loved funk. I, I totally got off on funk music and, you know, listened to Parliament. And so I liked all that kind of funky little picky stuff. And I developed a style like Nile Rogers um, of learning how to do picky dampened kind of um, stuff to the uh, songs we were writing. And uh, Melody was my strong suit. Mostly I was like one of the uh, writers that would come up with melody lines and hooks. Um, so does that answer that question? It, it does. And yes, the, the great, the world of patchouli and, and sort of hippie freedom, really, isn't it? Because you must have then had that little bit of experience where there was the still honeymoon of the 60s counterculture with kind of 67 being the summer of love, where things were still looking optimistic and and people thought they were going to change the world. And there was that sort of 14-hour Technicolor dream at Ali Pali where they had early Pink Floyd and, and the Helter Skelter. So, so that yes, and you must have just kind of then had that experience of sort of then being aware of people like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison all dying at 27 at nine, in 1970, right. which must have been a massive cultural like, oh, that's a bit strange. And I've spoke to a few of those, you know, people who were quite movers and shakers of the 60s, like Barry Miles. And I always, I did ask him, I said, you know, what happened? You were there right in the 60s, but then you, you weren't there in the 70s. And he said, we were just really tired. We just needed to sleep, which kind of, I could understand. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of honest, because I think most people have five years and then they go, I've got to go. I've just got to go. So um, yes, then the 70s come along. So you must have been did you have a little bit of a kind of a, not a problem, but, you know, having indulged in, in so much kind of love piece and, and patchouli, which is good, then the sort of the 70s come along with this slight glam and then this kind of slight denim rockers kind of vibe and thinking, oh, what's happening now? No, I, I just seem to seamlessly kind of flow along with the tide. Like I said, I always like the rhythm, the more rhythmic, um, I suppose, tunes and songs of that hippie period. And don't forget, I was just a little too young to be a hippie. So I was just like getting in on the tail end of it. I just loved the way Joni Mitchell kind of had, was such a great songwriter, an amazing musician period, and how she looked. And so that was my muse. And so I learned from all of that. But then, thing, you know, music was emerging. I was emerging and getting into all sorts of things. I was now probably at art college because um, I'd graduated from school and gone to Portsmouth Art School. And so, you know, it was a whole creative world. And I was just on the pulse of all the different things that were happening and thinking all of it was kind of great. Yes. So, um and did you and did people like Melanie come along and sort of inspire you at all with her sort of acoustic songs and heartfelt lyrics? A little bit, a little bit. She, I suppose she was not quite as cutting edge as I felt. I was always drawn to people that had a little bit more edge, um, that had maybe more of a message to say or were just a little kind of on, 
an unusual vibe yes. more than commercial. So with Jody Mitchell, I mean, like, it... even though, well, even though we as a band, I suppose, could have been classed as quite commercial. Yes. In the end, you know, but this happens, doesn't it? I mean, did you do with Jody Mitchell? Was it the kind of the blue, the court and spark period that you got particularly kind of um, in, in, entrenched in? No, it was always Ladies of the Canyon was my first album. And I just loved the folk music. But she starts getting into a few things on that album. And then, you know, she was just the starting point for me. But I would always c come back and cycle round with her. Um, because I moved on from that initial inspiration as her as a singer-songwriter. And then my interest became more in dancing and being in sort of the musical love of dancing and going to clubs and that kind of thing. And uh, I hadn't picked up an electric guitar yet, but um, so I, I liked, um, I'm just trying to think what, what caught my eye more. I suppose it was bands like Free and, um, a lot of the bands that came out of that Isle of Wight Pop Festival. Yes. You know, I, I would kind of like follow up with because I didn't, I hadn't been exposed to them. Um, I think there was, there was people like, actually Jet, Jethro Tull always appeared at all those festivals, didn't they? Jethro Tull. And I think Tiny Tim as well with his little ukulele, which was quite cute. But yeah. <laughs> it was quite something. <laughs> and they tried to knock the wall down. I always remember those great films, uh, that kind of, you know, where the promoters, you know, having to say, look, it's now a free festival. You can come, you can go, don't worry about it. We'll just lose all the money. It was an emotion. All the money, and they did. They did with the Isle of Park Festival. He, he lost a lot of money, but um, it was just life-changing. It was a life-changing moment for me. I can remember there was a Canadian man there who must have been older, and I keep thanking him in the ethers because he, he saw that I was by myself and very young and that, you know, he kept an eye on me and said, have you eaten today? And look, you don't have to take all your backpack with you every time you go and line up in the, the bathrooms because there were these huge lines to go to the porta potties. He said, look, I'll look after everything. And so he was like a guardian angel. Oh God, that's <laughs> it was so nice. Sure. Yeah, that I wasn't going to be, you know, someone's going to make me drop acid and take advantage of me or something. So um, I was able to kind of like enjoy the whole four or five. And when I got back home, I, I think I slept for 36 hours. I mean, my parents must have known, but maybe they still believed I went with a whole group of people. But um, I don't know whether they... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, it's always, it's, it's always interesting because when you go to the well, those festivals in the sort of I don't know, I didn't in the seventies, but more in the eighties. I do remember when you sort of leave the site and then go to the service station for various, you know, petrol and bits and pieces. You just suddenly realise how much you smell because you haven't washed for four or five days, and, it, <laughs> and everybody looks at you. But now I think festivals are quite nice, and they got water. But in you know the days when oh yeah, it's civilized, they totally they, they just there was no there was no showers, and they were just long drops. And you thought, no, I haven't I haven't washed for days, literally probably a week. Right, and you don't Actually, notice just, it. I just a little well 
ago, strangely enough, I, I actually went online because the, there's now footage of, of the Isle of Wight Pop Festival. Um, and so I was able to look, watch online what I had seen, but more from the stage perspective, because yes. most of the cameramen that were around at that festival were mostly taking footage of the artists as they're coming on or going off the stage and panning out to the sea of audience and I thought oh my god I'm out there somewhere and no, I knew where amazing. I was but there's just no way they were gonna you know pan because they didn't have cameras going through all of those sea of people but it was just funny and just seeing the bands and listening to them again now and just remembering certain moments for me and of course I was probably nodding off in between because <laughs> They kept it going. They had two stages and they would have one band on one stage. And then, you know, while that one's breaking down, they're setting up someone over here. So it was like a festival that never slept. Yes. And yes, I remember now, you, you know, I remember, I don't know which one it was when the stage, you know, starts to burn down. And then they had Chris Christopherson and jo Joan Bias and... Um, it was just extraordinary. But then it was of its time. It was kind of interesting through that 60s period because I grew up in East Anglia. And during the 70s, and I was too young for this, there was a lot of uh, fairs and festivals, but they were very different to what you get now. I mean, they were just much more about sort of community and they often used to have a slightly medieval theme. So there was ones called, they called them the Albion fairs or the Barsham fairs. So they were really hippie, you know, incredible. And a lot of people were coming out of the cities and getting cheap accommodation in the countryside and wanting to live in these little communities and grow vegetables and then you know start doing pottery and stuff like that so it was a really idealistic period for quite a few people in the early 70s especially but it came out of that kind of 60s movement yeah Very that's fun. great yes i'm glad to hear that i'm i'm i must must have missed that i was still probably studying at uh, art college so did you when you left school at the age of 16 go to college and study fine art yeah, well, I did a foundation course and um, I'd sewn from a little girl. I was making Dolly's clothes at four years of age. Uh, both my grandmothers sewed really well. And so I picked up a needle, I think, at three, um, unbeknown to my mom. While my mom was talking to Auntie Rosemary, I mm. went into Auntie Rosemary's sewing kit. So um, a tour of the local art college when I was at my school um, was it. I, I didn't realize you could do fashion design for a living. And so it sort of married all my artistic uh, leanings that were starting to develop by then because I was making my own clothing at 13 and 14 I was experimenting with um, sewing my own loon pants with go days I made a wizard's coat out of my grandmother's velvet curtains <laughs> and so going to art college Portsmouth Art College was just wonderful because you do a foundation course first and you delve into graphics film um, fine art pottery blah 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 a little bit of fashion, and then you can decide what you want to major in. So it was designing for me. Yes. And so I went into fashion design and then went on to the Royal College in London. 
God, four years of studying. That's just magic. And a grant, which is good as well, isn't it? So um... I know, free education. <laughs> no, Can you imagine? And, and you could sign on in the summer and Christmas and Easter. I remember my brother was a student in the 70s and, and they couldn't even be bothered to sign on because they thought, well, it doesn't matter really. But, you know, it was, um, and housing benefit as well. So education was very different. So did you start to... Um, pick up on the punk scene that's you know was obviously going to be a little bit different to the sort of the hippie vibe of, of um, the Isle of Wight. Yes that was in the first band before the Bellsters uh, I, I was part of a band called the Body Snatchers I don't know whether you knew that yeah and the Body, Body Snatchers was a ska band and so there were elements of our music that kind of verge you know ska and punk kind of almost hybrid it a little bit, even though Scar was very much, you know, from the Jamaican islands. And, um, but it was that fast, rapid, kind of intense pulse of a rhythm. Yes, that was... And um, I can remember short how did, hair. So and, how did that sort of develop, you know, the body, you know, because the body snatchers got a lot of good press and immediately got picked up didn't they and and you have huge amounts of listens on spotify each month so how did the the band develop from um from nothing to suddenly being in the recording studio well there was a um the bass player nikki summers was a hairdresser and she was an east end type of girl and her father owned a vegetable barrel on um uh, forgotten the place in London so she was very street savvy not afraid you know quite strident about life and she just had had a vision that she wanted to create a female version of like the specials because they were already out I guess yes. and so she put an ad in the paper I think it was the enemy and or the melody maker maybe it was melody maker um, in 1978, was it? Or 79, 78, maybe. And it said, girl guitarist wanted for all girl dance and beat band. And I was dating a musician at the time, which is why I happened to be reading the paper. And um, I pointed it out to him and he said, well, why don't you audition for it? And I said, oh my God, I, you know, I don't know how to pick up, I don't know how to use an electric guitar. Um, you know, I still noodled around on my acoustic. So he taught me. He lent me his guitar, his amp. He showed me how to hold a pick and how to plug it in and do bar chords. And so after a little bit, I went. I mean, it must have been very quick because so I had to answer the ad. But somehow I got it together, went along, and um, I passed muster, I guess, for whatever she was looking for because I did this... Um, upstroke like the skank beat which is yes. all upstroke on a guitar and so thanks to pete he knew <laughs> what, what was needed and taught me what to do in the interview so i was in and then you know we talked about what other members we needed to make this specific sound and we we've eventually she had a drummer already so it was drums and bass and then me was one guitar. Then we needed another guitar player and Stella came along. Then we realized we needed horns because that scar sound always has these trumpets and saxes and horn sounds. So 
eventually we got Miranda and she didn't know how to play anything, but her brother who was rehearsing in the next room said, you know, my sister wants to join a band. So she came and talked to us and she said, so what instrument do you need? And we said, well, we need horns. And she said, okay. So she went away. She got us Salvation Army saxophone and learned to play Hawaii Five-O by the next week and came in and she was in. <laughs> so it was, it was so, um, I can't even explain how, sort of like a uh, cowboy it was, but how it all kind of rolled together because there was just this young enthusiasm. Yes. And so but... we rehearsed forever. And we, we basically uh, sat around my dance set record player listening to these old ska songs because we didn't know how to play. We didn't know song structure. We didn't know what a verse and a chorus and an intro and a middle eight was. We had to literally teach ourselves this. So we listened on my dance set record player to these originals and we figured it out. We kind of disseminated and um, kind of back engineered these songs and figured out what, who was doing what and what the bass was doing. And we would help each other. And then we would kind of like emulate it. So we started with covers, a lot of covers. And then we got pretty good enough that the boyfriends of us said, well, when are you going to play your first gig? So one of them who was in the music business booked us a gig at the Windsor Castle and on the Harrow Road. And um, we couldn't agree on a name because we're seven girls now, right? I can't agree on a name. It had to be unanimous. So we went out as La Rude Galore, I think. I can't remember. I think that's what we called ourselves. And the same boyfriend that got us the gig, which was Stella's boyfriend, he um, leaked it to somebody. He said, this girl band's going to debut. And when we were um, playing, um, at the very end, uh, Jerry Danis came through the crowd and said, you girls are great. I'm going to sign you on my tour. And we literally got signed to Two Tone Records on our first gig. Wow. Can you believe? <laughs> oh, no. It's a true story. Um, and so, you know, this was a hobby for me. It was something to do. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be <laughs> doing it as a living. And so... What's it like going on quickly. tour? Yes, I was going to say, it must have been quite a shock to the system suddenly having that experience because it was very tribal at that time and some of those gigs were quite sort of aggressive, weren't they? Yes. And when we played in Ireland, there was, you know, fights going on and stabbings and Rhoda, who was very confident and very tall, as you might remember, she was the singer in The Body Snatchers. She um, would stop playing. Okay. We're not going to play until you sort it out. And so we were often playing to, you know, groups of skinheads and that were all bobbing up and down and uh, gobbing and trying to set, start fights. And so, yes, it was quite a time. It's a wonder we managed to stay unscathed. Yes, um, absolutely. And John Peel picked up as well on, on the band, didn't he? Yeah. 
and that's yeah, so a- we had a good time with that and of course we had that very controversial song that Rhoda brought to the table which was a self pen song called the boiler and um that was about a rape that she had obviously experienced and nobody kind of knew what the lyrics were unless they were really paying attention and listening and um it became quite a a, a sort of um signature song of ours because it was so controversial and a lot of people kind of related to it and then I think she went on to do it separately much later she's still active um, yes she's it, she's often about um, on various panels and various shows DJing as well isn't she so then yeah because at that point you know we'd had the sort of real punk scene and then there was that kind of I suppose you you're around at that that kind of interesting point in social history for Great Britain where you know 1979 you know Margaret Thatcher gets into power so suddenly the political landscape changes a lot and then we have you know there's the Falkland War there's Greenham Common which is kind of happening and it's quite sort of huge as well and then and then there was also the miners strike so you were sort of at that point where the, the 80s becomes really quite difficult doesn't it really I mean it's a really divided world of people who really buy the Thatcher dream and the people who feel a bit left behind so there was a lot of bands from the 80s who'd start because they're on job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes and stuff like that so yes so you, it must have felt, you you know, especially being on tour with people like the Specials and having all that kind of um, two-tone tribal quality, it must have felt quite interesting being still very young and still very new to the music industry. Oh, so exciting. We loved it. We would watch them. And that's how we honed our skills when we went on that tour, um, the two-tone tour. Uh, with the selector and the specials. And it was like a beach town tour around Britain. Um, I can remember the um, crew, the PA crew and the lighting crew, you know, were giggling and smirking behind our backs. Oh, look at this lot, you know, elbowing each other like, oh, my God, what's this going to sound like? And we were a little rough, of course. We were a little out of time, a little out of tune. You know, we were just learning. And it was all new to us to be kind of really doing real gigs and shows and opening for these bands. But boy, when we came, when we were nearing the end of that tour, we were so tight, we were so professional. And it really served us. It was like, you know jumping in the deep end and learning all our, our professional chops by sitting on the sidelines after we played and watching uh, Selector and Pauline Black and um, the specials do their thing. And yes. So we learned a lot of their moves and how to move with the guitar and how to, you know, create stage presence and, you know, get tighter and tighter as we played. So, yeah, we came off that tour. We were ready to um, record. Take off. Take off. Yes. So then you yeah. recorded a few singles, didn't you? From that tour. Yes. That period. Yeah. And what was that mm-hmm. experience like being in the studio? Did you have a good producer who sort of managed to capture the sound you wanted? Oh, yeah. I mean, and we were new, so we didn't know what sound we wanted. You know, we were, we were very much probably being... Um, uh, guided at that point and just in the uh, wonder of it and just 
being careful to do our part as best as we were able to. And um, I didn't really take an active role in mixing or giving um, engineering ideas until I was in the Bell Stars. Yes. So you did two sort of singles, Let's Do the Rocksteady and then Easy Life. Mm -hmm. And what happens to the band at that stage? Because it seems like you're still in the honeymoon phase, which is always good for a band. Well, um, the ska movement was starting to um, dissipate. And Nikki and um, Rhoda still liked that music a lot because I think they either hung out with people in that genre. But there was a few of us that felt that music was shifting and changing. And so there was this slight dissension in the band where Nikki wanted to carry on with ska music. And most of us were thinking, no, that's going to die a death soon. So what happened was we split up. And uh, I don't know what Nikki did at that point. But the rest, the, the, uh, some of us, the, the drummer disappeared. Um, Jane, Nikki and Rhoda disappeared and it was Stella, Miranda, no, yeah, Miranda, Stella and myself that continued and we decided we wanted to go more R&B and so we started putting an ad in to find a drummer, we found um, Judy and then we found uh, a keyboardist because we felt we wanted keyboards. And we found Claire, who could not only play keyboards well, but also was a, a sax player, tennis sax player. Yes. So now we had a horn section. Um, and then um, we found Leslie for bass. And so then we needed a singer because we'd lost Rhoda. And I had a boyfriend who I asked or an ex-boyfriend and he knew Jenny and that's how we got Jenny my god it all fitted into place so well because Claire Claire goes goes on to she appears at Live Aid doesn't she with David Bowie oh yeah which is which is a great a great thing I know she's doing gigs now with Hazel O'Connor which so the band it sounds like you were sort of like quite a perfect kind of uh, match with each other with sort of with the musical styles and and sort of attitude Well, yes, I think, you know, Stella and I had a very dedicated attitude towards music. um, And I was very definitely very musical. And so I think we we had some idea of where we were wanting to go musically. And we were all Leos and Virgos in that second band. It was really hysterical how we managed to survive, you know, you think with so many Leos <laughs> and Virgos being such perfectionists, but somehow it worked. And I guess we tolerated each other or we, we would, you know, discuss things. And then um, we found that we would work better either in groups of, of songwriting. So it was always Miranda and Stella that I would write with those two. And Judy would write by herself, um, Claire, I think, wrote by herself. Um, I'm not sure what Leslie did or how she might have come up with songs. But, you know, after a while, everybody was trying to put something into the pot. Um, Some of us became more prolific at songwriting than others, even though we divvied up the money equally and still did. 
um, it wasn't so prominent like um, um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, where they were the writing, you know, of the Beatles mostly. Um, it was a little bit more spread out, but it, after a few years, it was very, you know, obvious who were the stronger writers. And um, but we still kept it, you know, but we would divvy it all up evenly. Yes. And I think that's actually to our um, success that there was never any animosity because it was always fair. Yes. And you also, you know, it, it didn't take long to suddenly find yourself, you know, getting a lot of um, sort of attention because you, you sort of work on your foot with the first single with sort of Clive Langer and um, Alan Wynn Stanley, who were the kind of the hit makers like Mickey most of the seventies. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, they, they know how to craft a, a song and get a good production sound as well in the studio. So yes. obviously, you know, you quite, you got quite fast tracked and the songs that you were kind of writing and, and recording, they did capture a certain essence of, of, you know, Great Britain at that time, didn't it? Didn't they? I guess they did, you know, whatever we were doing, uh, it was just something that I guess had to, was a meant to be. Um, whether it was to encourage uh, other women into music, but uh, we certainly had a great innings. When I think back, how lucky we were, and even the contracts, um, you know, at that time, it was still always in favor of the musicians and not these very unfair contracts that came later where the huge proportion was to the record company. Yeah. Um, and so we were lucky like that. We we got help. Um, certain members of the band were really good at that side of things that could read into legal jargon. Judy was one of those. She matriculated in maths and logic. So she had this capacity for reading contracts and being able to kind of understand the jargon and break it down for all of us to kind of understand. Yes, and, this is um, true. And then when we would go to on tour in France um, or Spain, then Stella came to to the front because she could speak four languages. So she was always interpreting, oh, they want it with rice and peas and not blah, blah. So she would do the (laughs) interviews. Um, So we all had a, a, I was uh, with Penny. We did a lot of the artwork for things uh, back in the body snatches. And then when Penny got replaced with Claire, I still continued to have a very um, creative uh, input on how we looked. People looked to me, of course, because I had that fashion background for what we should be wearing. And, um, you know, so. <laughs> so how does the. Everybody- the- your song, um, The Sign of the Times, Sign of the Times, how does it, can you remember how that came about, you know, the process of, you know, writing, recording it and, and uh, the inspiration for such a song which becomes so epic in the 80s? Yes, I can. Um, I can remember getting together with Miranda and um, Stella at Brian Tench's flat, who I was dating at the time record producer and um we would get together there for songwriting and i can remember we i said to them let's create something with a good hook 
And so I said, you know, it'd be great to do, you know, like those Tamla Motown songs that always have this little bit of talking first. And there's this little kind of like a compliment going on in the background, like a little guitar riff. So I came up with that little guitar riff. And then Stella, who was, I think, a little bit more prolific with lyric making, you know, started messing around on a pad with some lyrics. And, um, and then Miranda, who was good at both melody and lyrics, you know, started putting her little input. And we wrote that together one afternoon at Brian Tench's flat. Right. And then we presented it to the band. And then, we, you know, we wrapped it up with a little bit more arrangement and how the horn line was going to go. And uh, that was that. And, and then um, Dave, uh, what's his name? The guy from Stiff Records. Dave. Oh, Robinson. Robinson, thank you. Uh, he, he loved it. He thought it was a hit. You girls, that's a hit. And so he really was behind, you know, promoting it. And the funny thing is, David, I have to tell you, later, we wouldn't know this at the very get-go, you know, so the whole premise was to do a tongue-in-cheek tongue kind of Tamil Motown thing where the four tops covered it. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> this is so funny. It's like giving coals back to Newcastle. Well, anyway. Right? Yes. So we got really, we got a good chuckle out of that, but the four tops felt it was good, <laughs> good enough material for them to cover it. Yes, because there are some lovely lines in, in that song, which are slightly melancholic as well, you know, just talking mm -hmm. about the passing of time. Did you, did, were they lyrics that you had written or other members of the band? I just always remember there's a, there's a sentiment in the song, isn't there, which is quite timeless. I don't want to quote, but I think I think Stella had a lot to do with maybe the way that the sentiment kind of came forward in that song. Because I, I, I had a, a vague memory that she was maybe the person that was kind of flowing with the first set of lyrics. Right. And I don't know whether that was reflective of something she was going through personally at the time, but Probably. Yes. You know, she, it, she would probably be the one to interview next. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because, but then, you know, as, as with some of those kind of songs that we especially heard in, you know, certain decades that we know well, you know, you, this is a massive success, isn't it? Right around the world and Europe, et cetera, which is also part of the world. Um, yeah. So how did you cope with that as, as a sort of a band? Because obviously, you know, no one prepares you for potential hits because let's face it, no one thinks they're going to really get that far. And then suddenly it happens. What was it like for yourself kind of personally and, and also dynamically within the group? It was exciting. I think, you know, we realised that we better, you know, get keep it together and that we, um, you know, we really did have a good work ethic. We took ourselves qu quite seriously. We realized we had a chance here. We were all enjoying it. We, I think we had a good um, attitude towards um, what we were doing and what it took. And of course, Leo's love to be in the limelight. Um, so the, comp the composition of the band had the right personalities if you will 
Um, Jenny was always such a great front person and we had humor. And then we had a, a our first uh, manager was not so great, but as soon as we got John Rummins, he was really behind us. He was a great manager and kept us all on the straight and narrow with, okay, what, what, what are we going to do today? Let's go through this and here's our plan and there's this interview and we've got to go here. And, you know, so it, it was a magical um, combination of personalities and willingness to show up. Yes, and one of the most iconic record covers of the 80s, really, isn't it, as well? It sort of just appeared everywhere, that, that particular album cover. Just image. Yeah. It, was, it was very sort of well executed. Because having done this show for a long time, I mean, most bands have a great five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they have that honeymoon period, 12 months. Then, you know, a lot of the indie bands of the 80s, you know, John Peel picks up a single, they get the the great John Peel session. I know this didn't completely, <laughs> doesn't run completely with your life, your story, but they get the first album, things are going well, they do the tour, possibly around, you know, the UK and Europe, possibly America. And then the tricky second and possibly tricky third albums. So what happens with you during the sort of the next bit of, bit of the 80s as we get into the sort of 84, 85? 84, 85? Yes. Hmm. I'm trying to think what, where we were right then and what we were doing. Mm, can't remember. Yes, <laughs> no, but what happens to the band after the album comes out? Did you, I mean, you must have toured, obviously you said Europe a lot. Did you go to America at all? Yes, we did Dance Ateria and um, Something Club, uh, Star Club. There was a club in Philadelphia we played. Um, but mostly they wanted us to play to backing tracks because they didn't have the setup and we couldn't bring all our gear over. Um, I'm just trying to think. But we had a hit with, um, but that was in the incarnation, I think. That was later with World Domination. That was after some of the bands had left. So what was happening with records was Dave that company that was Dave Robinson's partner yeah and Dave unbeknown to a lot of us had turned the video editing suite because if you remember he did we did always in-house videos um he did all the in-house videos for madness in the car park of stiff records they were always kind of a little homespun but quirky yeah and so um he had turned the video editing bay in Stiff Records into a place to bet on the horses, being Irish. And what we didn't know was that Jake probably had keep, been keeping an eye on things and keeping it all on the straight and narrow. But unbeknown to us, Dave was betting on the horses and betting the profits of the company and not reinvesting it. And we didn't realize, but a lot, he was going under. And so he tried to negotiate. I'm just trying to think where we were here before we became a three-piece. Such a vague memory now. <laughs> I, know, I think just... he, tried to, he, he tried to sell us while we had a hit to MCA in America. 
um, because he was clutching at straws with, you know, who he had still left on his roster that mm -hmm. hadn't left because they got wind of it. And we were in good negotiations, but he wanted too much money. He was greedy and wanted too much money because he was desperate. And then they, our record was coming down in the dance charts over here and he said, and they said no. And so we lost, lost the deal with MCA and Stiff Records folded. And that's when we all decided to disband. Right. So you never got a chance to sort of work on a follow up album. Correct. Well, we did do that that album that is now on the last CD that got put out. Uh, we released some un, previously unreleased tracks with um, um, what's her name, the female producer. Oh, um, not Trevor Horn's wife. No. Um, can't think of a name right now. Um, well, we did a, an album with a J Dudley. Um, oh, Anne Dudley. Anne Dudley. We did a whole album with Anne Dudley that got shelved. And uh, that has more recently, a lot of the tracks from that album just got re-released in a, a double CD Box. of ours. Oh, nice. Well, it's always good to get mm -hmm. these things out. And that was with Zed's... TT Records, wasn't it? ZTT Records with the Trevor. Um, I think it was back then. I can't remember. But now we're with Deep. Demon has our back catalogue right now, Demon Records. And that's who just re released this um, C double CD. Yes. So then by then, you said most of the band you'd got down to a three piece. Were people just sort of losing enthusiasm by this stage? After well, Jenny wanted to go. Yeah, I think after Aiko Aiko, she was, you know, having a little bit of a drug phase. Um, I hope she won't mind me saying that. She has been quite open about that in her career and turned her whole life around and is, you know, such an advocate now to help people. Um, not go down that path but she was hanging out with Steve Strange and it was really a little bit of the downfall towards the end of our career with her because she wasn't paying attention she was showing up late her voice would be thrashed and um, but she was in a different kind of like idea of knowing she was still the singer she felt like she wanted to go and do her own career Yes. And so she was going to go solo, which never really happened for her right away because I guess she couldn't get it together. And so she wanted to go and be separate. And that left a um, couple of them wanted to go off and have babies, I guess, or get into being in a different um, career. Uh, I think Miranda, what, no, Miranda's still stuck in there for a while. I'm just trying to think where they all went. And did you have another keyboard player at one stage, Gerald? No, did we? I don't know. Did you have any other no. keyboard player? Not as far as I remember. Fair enough. Penny was the keyboard player in the Body Snatchers, and Claire Hurst was the keyboard player in the Bell Stars. Right. Yes, that was um. So yes, so then when when it all finishes, what do you what do you then do late next? Because I guess you know you'd finish you know college or university. 
Oh yeah, I was out of there. I, I, I was teaching at three different art schools in London as a professor when we did our first tour uh, with the Body Snatchers. I, I remember thinking, God, what do I do here? I've got these three professional jobs I'm doing as a visiting uh, professor. And now I'm going to have to tell them all I'm giving it up. <laughs> My mother thought I was crazy, of course. She, oh, you're wasting your degree and blah, blah, blah. You know, but um, I knew I wasn't going to get the opportunity to tour with a band. No. And so um, I went for it and gave up those three positions so I think what happened was, while all this was going on, I kept in freelance all the time. Uh, I would always be doing a little freelance work on the side for either Inigo Jeans or uh, Jeff Banks, who had employed me um, before all this happened. And so uh, I kept my hand in doing freelance design work in between writing songs and going on tour. And so towards the end of realizing that we better call it a day, um, you know, even after the three piece, the three of us, um, we recorded tracks and another album with Dominic Bugatti in New York. Uh, and that's where world domination came into being. Um, we were much more of a, I don't want to say synth band, we weren't that. We were bringing in session musicians to make up for all the other players we didn't have. And we were now more concentrated on singing. I did play guitar on a lot of those tracks, but still, you know, they were more manufactured. Um, and then we, we kind of looked at it all and we felt like it wasn't going anywhere and that the essence of you know the, the the big group had gone and so we just decided amicably to disband yes um, i have to so say that it went on to be a i was going to say that was a great cover you've got for world domination as well it's so stylish yeah so was we we co-wrote began to do quite a bit of writing with him and of course he's a seasoned uh, songwriter and we enjoyed that period um and it would be perfect it's it's such a perfect song for somebody to cover now <laughs> <laughs> i know hint hint i was thinking it should be trump's signature song <laughs> yes absolutely so then i mean kind of interestingly enough um how do you then sort of find yourself you know in the 90s and then sort of coming up to the current day. I mean, how does, where does your life then sort of lead after that kind of kind of incredibly intense 10 years sort of with the body snatchers and with the bell stars? Well, I can remember I was freelancing. I was doing well in fashion, freelancing for, for the Emanuels who were in my year at college, at the Royal College. And they have become so successful with their Emmanuel name and having done Lady Di's wedding dress yes. that they were being um, sought after to do bed linens and sunglasses and this, that and the other. So I became a ghost designer for them. And, um, you know, that enabled Elizabeth and uh, David to concentrate on their celebrity clients 
and yet still, you know, have their hand dabbled in stamping the Emmanuel label on products. So they paid me handsomely. And then Jeff Banks was pulling me in to redesign the Girl Guide uniform for Britain, which I did. He he got the credit. I got the money. Um, (laughs) And I think at that point, somebody was looking for a guitar player for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And um, he pared his band down and it was now um, Holly Johnson. Right. And so um, he was looking for someone to do that looked like a Prince girl that could play guitar um, and prance around and do uh, playbacks on TV shows in Germany and Europe. And, and I don't know. I can't remember all the places we went. Mm. And so I got hired by his team to be a, a guitar player with him for a while doing these kind of TV shows. And that was a lot of fun because I didn't have to sign the autographs. I got paid and yes. I could go home and sleep. <laughs> um, one album or single called Love Train, which got quite a big, a big kind of I don't know push from MCA I think I don't know were you did you record with anything did you record any stuff on no this? I didn't do any I, I don't recall I did any recording I was more the glamour puss you know that could actually play yes. and play well to play back and mime things if I needed to so I don't recall we we might have done some sort of studio recording where then they, they use the live track for the tv show but nothing that went out as vinyl or you know yes so then I mean kind of interestingly enough during the sort of 80s and a bit of the 90s as well I I sort of you know just in you know I'm just kind of curious I was very kind of part of that sort of new age hippie kind of world that happened and you know I had quite a few friends who were a bit older than me and um they got, they were, you know, they sort of mixed a lot of sort of, um, I suppose, spiritual sort of things together. So we were really into the world that was sweat lodges and earth energy and earth medicine and stuff like that. I mean, did you, I mean, that sort of was looking at your website. How does this kind of, or when did this start <laughs> coming to your, your life? Because cause crawling in and out of a sweat lodge, which is, you know, the tarpaulin with this kind of like, don't touch the big rocks because you'll burn yourself. And yes, you're probably sitting on a rather painful thistle or flint. I mean, um, it was quite interesting during my 80s and 90s. So how did how did some of this kind of creep into your kind of life? Well, uh, when I was nearly five, I wanted a child of the 50s. Here I am not having watched television. Um, little English girl with very English parents. I uh, My parents were sort of, trying to ask me what I might like for my my fifth birthday and apparently I announced I wanted a teepee right they didn't know what I was talking about so I can remember I ended up drawing it and then they said oh a wigwam so they got me this kid's wigwam I wanted to sleep in it out of doors I knew it belonged out of doors they said I was too young that they would set it up in the dining room um and then I was making Pocahontas outfits by the time I was like eight, nine, ten. And then uh, when I was old enough to have my own flat, 
I was making my house look like a Mexican hacienda. So there was something there um, that then got put on the back burner until I found myself coming out here. And that's a whole long story, which we won't go into. But the first place I landed was Upper Winupa, Place of Water near Palm Springs. And it was sacred land, no accident. And then where I am here, this is um, called Iniwihimu, um, center of the world to the Shumash people. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be serendipitous too, but um, it's not really when I think about it. I think my soul has always been guided. And um, I don't know, it might sound a bit quirky or uh I don't know what to say about this, but I think I had a life. I think I've had a a life as a Native American. It's just in me Um, and has been since a very early age. And I think I'm remembering it Mm. in this lifetime. Um, If that doesn't sound too too out there. (laughs) No, completely not. Because frankly, you know, during during those decades, you know, it was, um, you know, talking about ley lines having sort of, constantly being smudged with you know smudgy um stuff and uh having power animals and sort of going ritual was a really big thing during that period and you know and obviously i loved it and you know still kind of do but you know it's not it's quite different now but you know meeting on the full moon having lots of kind of meaningful chats and drumming away for hours on end and getting into you know other bits as well like the the Gabrielle Roth five rhythms I mean you know just anything that was going literally just came part of my community and friends at that kind of you know those two decades really I mean I didn't stop doing it because I didn't like it it's just you know things you know I don't have that community particularly anymore so it's quite just interesting when I was like oh my goodness me all this your uh, website and language there was like just brought took me back you know a few a few years ago and um and brought a smile to my face thinking my goodness so I was oh, just good I'm so I'm thrilled to hear that David because you know I, I feel like it's a bit of a private place for me because I don't feel a lot of people do share that um uh and I'm surprised when I do come across people that have that same um I don't know camaraderie of it or love of it or uh, appreciation of that time and place or if they've had those experiences and and it's been meaningful to them oh my goodness so, yes I mean um, going into a sweat lodge and and sort of you know for the first time and you know it still brings back like wow yes that that you know that evening night you know over a full moon or under a full moon you know it was just kind of like something else I was like you know quite I felt quite young it was probably the mid 80s and quite a lot of friends you know who were just that bit older had really got into that you know those kind of interests and and curiosities and 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 I did sort of mention slightly at the beginning in those the fairs and festivals of East Anglia during the early 70s Albion and Barsham a lot of people had really started to use a lot of those kind of I suppose you know you would call it appropriation cultural appropriation or spiritual or whatever but you know they would just take this and that and there was a few people like Bruce Lacey who used to love doing ritual and he would just bring in anything and he was always very naked with just you know body paint and he would be blowing a conch and jumping through fertility symbols that he made and firing arrows into sort of burning sort of uh 
spinning, you know, straw and things like that. So everyone, you know, that, that sort of got planted in, in East Anglia in the early 70s. And it's always been around. And I'm sure all of, you know, Britain has little pockets like that. And, you know, going to Avery, Stonehenge, going on ley lines, getting very kind of cosmic was just part of my life. So, um, yeah, so I... Oh, I, wonderful. Good. <laughs> a kindred soul. A kindred soul. I love it. I love it. But it was interesting because a few just before Christmas, I did an interview with um, a member of a band called Johnny Hate Jazz, who, um, and it was really funny because they had this massive hit, you know, huge. He just walks away from everything, and he spends his nineties, you know, doing drum groups and having Jimby drums. And I talk about the same thing as I'm talking to you about, and he just said, "Yep." that's what I did in my 90s that was you know I just had to get away from that whole my god we just had this massive number one I'm not quite sure what I really want to do but you know it was it was just nice to sort of share that with somebody you know because you think god I never I never right. but he said yeah I, I he ran a drumming group in Bristol you know with his Jimby drums he said no one knew knew anything about my you know like massive song that we had and chart success no one knew anything about it but he loved it so you know it's nice that's you know. right you know you and i'm do. a drum circle for, uh, i'm a drum circle facilitator uh, that, i don't know whether that was on my website um i got into hand drumming quite a while back um boyfriend again that was working for paolo mattioli who's passed now but he uh was a remo in dorsey and um, was encouraging my boyfriend to go to Hawaii to a drum circle facilitation training uh, because he, uh, my boyfriend at the time was going to be selling the drums to this kind of audience of people. So I said, and why don't you bring your girlfriend? She's a musician, isn't she? She might enjoy it too. And so I was going along as the girlfriend and I expected to kind of like um, observe, if you will. Um, but when Arthur saw me, he said, oh, come on, you're going to do this too. And so I ended up doing a two-week drum circle facilitator training. And um, of course, I had the rhythm already. Yes. Guitar player. But my hands weren't used to that amount of drumming every day. and my fingers were like the size of sausages because I was very enthusiastic. I was loving it, I was loving <laughs> it. But my hands were like sausages. And every night this guy called Happy Shell would rub this um, potion lotion with St. John's wort and Arnica into my hands and I could just about open them up in the morning and, and get them going again and then be ready to pound again on the, the next night. But that would change me and it would uh, push me away from guitar into percussion. Right. And then I uh, loved, you know, I've been big advocate of drum circles. I've um, hosted them. I um, facilitate them. I go and play with a lot of drummers anytime I can. And uh, we would have an annual 4th of July big uh, family gathering at the top of uh, these mountains up here. And one time we had 100 people all drumming. <laughs> it's great stuff. God, that must have been so, very... Yes. Yeah tranced out yes that sounds that sounds like the world the most marvelous thing so is it the case then that you you still have a certain connection to kind of the bell stars in knowing what's going on and the sort of like the publishing and the songwriting but generally you're you're very much you know 
ensconced in your sort of, I suppose, spiritual path. Well, there's that, yes, but I'm, I'm playing Celtic music. I'm, I'm finding my original roots. As much as I love and have embraced the native way, and that's still a big part of my uh, life, um, I've been playing with a Celtic band here in the mountains for, oh, a couple of years now. And it's really helped me get in touch with my original uh, ancestral roots. Um, I've, I am Welsh, Scottish, and Norwegian. And, you know, I kind of must have poo-pooed all of that at some point in, in exchange for wanting to know so much about Native culture. Mm. But what I've come to realize is studying the Native culture so much and studying with the Native American pipe carrier for 10 years has really enabled me to see how similar early pagan ways were in the Celtic tradition. It's all the same. The animals, the trees, um, the Ogham calendar with the 13 trees, uh, the uh, medicine wheel, the elements, you know, everything's the same. It's just a different set of language and maybe colors are a little bit different and maybe the animal totems might be a little bit different because we're on two different continents. But um, there's still this reverence for all of life and realizing that um, things outside of us other than human are all teachers and all hold energy. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a marvelous uh, turnaround. And who would know, just by playing Celtic music, I would return back to my own roots and start looking into and studying Celtic paganism and um, spirituality. Yes. Did you also get into, oh God, I might get this completely confused, some, you know, like with the Boran or Boran, as some people would call it, as well as kind of... Oh, the Boran. Yes, I haven't taken to that yet. It's one drum I still have yet to kind of master. I've had a go at it. I, I, I don't like the way you hold it. It doesn't feel even to me because you're holding it in one I guess one hand, but I should give it another go. Yes. I actually have been playing um, more guitar. I've returned to playing a lot of guitar now and doing a lot of picking and uh, well, I'm developing um, a combination style of picking, strumming and plucking. I can't even explain it uh, in these Celtic songs. They're bringing some other style out in me. Um, and then I will turn to percussion on other tunes that we play and play a djembe drum that has a really nice deep tone we love the djembe drum (laughs) yes right and i don't play it in an african way um because i'm playing to celtic music but there's something about the drum that works with it and i've seen other celtic bands uh, adopt djembe too so it's just interesting and now of course you can and i'm this band I play with isn't purist. I mean, we do play a lot of traditional Celtic songs, but we have a bigger group that we jam with. Um, and, you know, we're all a mishmash of different styles and, and we bring something to the table. We also do some bluegrass and some old time and some folk. So um, it's not just purely Celtic, but it, it, it's, 
it's a it's a music that you can't not dance to. Yes, well, absolutely. I was. It just reminds me. I did an interview with a guy called Chris Tofu or Tofu. He was in the Tofu Love Frogs. It's amazing. He he calls himself a vibe engineer, but he puts on events and he you know it's a lot of gypsy swing, electro swing. He likes those kind of fusion. You know, getting bands with that fusion for festivals because they're just kind of yeah they create that atmosphere. So I can imagine you know bringing in these kind of like kind of I suppose different slightly different styles without having to get too worried about whether it's being pure or not is quite a relief because you know one has to develop and evolve slightly you can't stick completely with the purest thing because it's done really isn't it that's a sweeping well, statement is, and I, <laughs> exactly and I think we're moving we're seeing how we're so global now and what's really refreshing is seeing people in India playing the bagpipes and um you know, this, these instruments have gone around the world, like the uh, harmonium and the hammer dulcimer, which is, you know, our le the leader of our kind of, I'll call her the musical director. She's in her 80s and she plays hammer dulcimer. And that's an instrument that is found all over the world. Mm. So it's just really interesting. Um, we are now, I think, finally at a point where we can hybridize and bring in different cultures and have other cultures playing um, instruments from other, other countries. And it's, it's uh, I just love it. It's, it's bringing a whole new genre of music um, and it's creating more friendship around the globe and helping us to break down these kind of barriers between mm. culture and religion, I feel. Yes, it's a long way from your wah wow pedal, isn't it? From your Jimi Hendrix moment to um, now, which is good. Right. It's, nice. it's a nice journey. <laughs> it's a good journey. I like that. Do you still have your wah wow pedal? I do. I do. The crybaby. Yes, I do. Yes. I still have. I don't have the. Uh, I don't have my Burns split sound um, jazz guitar that I first started with. That got stolen off a stage in Switzerland. Unfortunately, that was a beautiful guitar um, that I sold my acoustic for in part ex part exchange. Um, my first electric, and that had a whammy bar, and it also had a, a big. Bakelite knobs on it. One was, uh, gave you Wild Dog setting, and Wild Dog was the bottom. I was going to say, is it the neck pickup of the bottom three strings with the um, bridge pickup of the top three strings, and it gave you this kind of wilder sound. Mm -hmm. um, but that got stolen. Then I had a cherry uh, apple red metallic. Fender Strat um, that I got rid of because it was so heavy that it looked good. And now I have, I still have my um, black and white Fender Strat. And that's got all the EMG pickups and um, locking spursals, and it's set up to sound like Nile Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> straight to yeah such a cool dude actually so look if you could have said something to your like 16 or 18 year old self starting out there's something you could have just a few kind of I suppose you know little words of wisdom that you've kind of you know gained over the decades is there anything in particular that you would have just said oh yes by the way 
this this might be useful. You might ignore it, but who knows? It's it's you know just to pass pass it on. Is there anything that you know kind of comes to mind? Um, I think digest yourself with uh, a, a vast array of different music because I really feel feel that Ida White Pop Festival and seeing all of those different genres of acts really gave me an encyclopedia, um, a quick kind of like synopsis of how music was formulated and just kind of, um, I guess my little soul, my spirit, just soaked it all up like a sponge. And then it was, I was able to kind of use it as a bank. Mm. Um, it gave me that backdrop to know what song structure was. Um, so I would say, yeah, expand your horizon. Listen to really good music of every genre is what I would say. Yes, absolutely. And 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 just hope that you can have your guardian angel, your Canadian friend who just um, looked out Yeah, for right. Yeah, don't go to any pop festivals uh, um, um, accompanied. Well, yes. not these days anyway. No, this is true, actually. But look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. Um, and if you want, I can always send you the link when I've done it and send, you know. You oh, can please. Well, that would be great. I would you love can... it. You can always use it. But look, God, you've got such blue skies and it's still the afternoon. Just roughly, because yeah. being, being English, we love to talk about. When does it start to get dark there, by the way? Uh, it's getting dark, I think, around half past five right now. Gosh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, it, it's well, of course, we're now we're past the uh, solstice. Uh, I always get excited. I usually do like a uh, uh, some sort of ceremony here. I do uh, ceremonies on the quarters out here for the village. Um, but I didn't do one on the solstice because we had snow and nobody was going to be able to get anywhere to go and yes. participate. And we would all be freezing our nuts off. So um, we just privately did things at home. And my friends that know me, new to write things on pieces of paper and throw them in their own fire and you know yes. light a candle and blah 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 but and in three weeks, ever since i was gonna say in three weeks time we've got in bulk so that's gonna be very nice that's right we've got in bulk but already one minute a day we are getting more light because yes. on the 21st of december of course it was the darkest night and now it's the light's return so it always cheers me up when i when we go past that point because i know that the summer's coming I know, <laughs> the sun is, is coming <laughs> i know this fantastic feeling actually indeed i think that's the end of it well apart from a few more minutes but it gets emotional and we have to say goodbye it's sad anyway a massive thank you uh, to sarah jane owen for giving me the time for that interview if you want to find out more about her work google away that's that's the that's the term we use in the 21st century yeah sarah jane owen bell stars and um, i do believe she's on sort of various social media platforms and probably a website as well so do check it out this has been um, the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. I might have just said that, but I'll repeat myself. If you want to contact me, which is really nice, um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, you know, don't bother. Seriously. And um, also all these interviews, I know, lucky you, um, have been archived. Yes, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. 
So just fill your boots. It will change your life. Well, might not. But um, anyway, have a great week and stay safe.